Good morning. Um, I'm so pleased to be able to be here this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Jay, uh, and I'm the uh, RUF campus minister at Boise State. This church uh, was one of the one of the single-handedly biggest reasons that we were able to start this ministry uh, back in 2011. Uh, my family's been here for 18 months, um, and it's been quite different than we expected. Can you imagine that? Um, but but I must say that the Lord has been at work, and we are grateful. Uh, and I'm grateful to be able to be here this morning uh, and open God's word to you. Uh, we're looking at Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 20 today. This is a majestic scripture. Um, you know, we're fortunate enough, my family and I, to, to live close to downtown Boise. And we've got a beautiful view of the hills. And I'll never forget the first time that uh, my, my mother-in-law also lives with us. And I'll never forget the first time that we walked into the backyard and we, we saw the hills, and my mother-in-law just started crying. She, she hadn't seen the house until we bought it, because apparently in Boise, that's what you have to do to buy a house now. Um, and so I, I'll never forget um, her just breaking down into tears, and, and, and her looking at the hills of Boise the second day she was in this town. I'll never forget that, the majesty that, that she experienced as she looked upon the hills that, that so many of you understand as, as you drive into downtown or as you drive up to one of the, the ski hills that you go skiing on. You know, but, but now if you were to come and have a cup of coffee with me on my back porch, you would see the majesty of the hills, but you would also see a lot of pink and yellow and green You would see plastic toys in the backyard and in the sandbox. You would be confronted with not just the the beauty of God's creation, but also the fallenness of it, right? That that my three little girls, Lane, Remy, and Breck, forget to pick up their toys every day. Uh, There would be this meeting of both this transcendent creation, but also this eminence that a family now lives here. That things are no longer pristine as they were in the real estate photos. I think if we're not careful, we can come to the scriptures and we can see in in good part the the beauty of it, the transcendence of it, the bigness, to use a deep theological word, of it. But sometimes we forget the closeness. As I read this morning and reflected uh, on this poem, even on the front of your worship guide, the beautiful words that that I even found myself wondering in my mind away from them. They were so majestic and transcendent. But in that last stanza, a child in a foul stable. That even in these beautiful words that we're reminded that life is dirty. That it smells. That it's not perfect. And Jesus came close to us in that. And my hope is, as we read this scripture today, and as we think about it together, that the Holy Spirit would help us see that more clearly. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15 and going to verse 20. This is God's word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, or in him, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, 
the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, if I'm quite honest this morning, I, I want to be as impressive and as beautiful in my speech as this scripture, as the music that we've heard played this morning. But Father, I pray that you would guard me from that and that your Holy Spirit might help us to simply hear the beauty of the reality of you coming close, of you being close Father, I pray that, uh, that our minds might not wander as we sit and we, as we listen to what your word means, Lord. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, the word spoken and the word heard, Lord, would be ministered to our hearts and our souls by the third person of the Trinity. Lord, we need you even now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. What is it with, with famous people? And I don't just mean what they say online or, or what the, the most recent headline is on my, on my newsreader. What is it with us and famous people? No doubt some of you are more sanctified than I, but I get giddy when I think I might be in the presence of someone famous. Uh, a, a few weeks ago, just before Thanksgiving, uh, before the ski season really hit, uh, my wife and I got away. It's, it's a Christmas tradition that, that our Christmas present to one another is to get away for a night or two. And so we went to Sun Valley. We had, we had never been, uh, or we went to, to Ketchum, rather. And one of the first things I did uh, when I got to Ketchum is I, I pulled out my laptop and I, I looked up famous people in Ketchum, famous people in Sun Valley, because, you know, they live there, right? Bruce Willis lives there. Um, and I, I found that, that Clint Eastwood, at least at one point, spent a lot of time in Sun Valley, and, and someone was talking about the Jeep, or the, the Jeep uh, uh, Wagoneer that he drove around, and I thought, oh my goodness, what if I see a Jeep Wagoneer, and what if I see Clint Eastwood in Sun Valley? So here's what happened, as my wife and I walked around holding hands uh, with our mask on in Sun Valley in, in Ketchum, my head was on a swivel. And every time I saw anything that looked like a Jeep Wagoneer, I was peering in like a creep, peering into the cars. And if there was a, even an older looking gentleman, I thought, could that be him? Ridiculous. What is it with us and, and famous people? It, it may have happened to you in the airport or maybe you go to a, a city where you know someone lives. Maybe you've experienced that. You know, we, we feel as if these famous people are knowable in a lot of ways because we know a lot about them. Yet we also understand that they're unknowable, don't we? We know a lot about LeBron James. Whether you enjoy basketball or not, it's not the issue. He's just one of the most famous people in the world. Yet we don't really know him. There are others. We could list a, a whole bunch of people who are knowable yet unknowable. But I wonder if culturally... Does our, our obsession, and, and maybe that's a harsh word, maybe not, if, if our obsession with fame seems to distort our understanding at Christmas? I just wonder this. 
I, I wonder if uh, this obsession distorts it in a way that Jesus is famous to us. That we know a lot about him. That we celebrate him with gifts and we talk about him at Christmas time. I wonder if, if culturally there's been this seeping in of, of treating Jesus as if, as if he's simply someone famous. That as Jesus has come close to us in the incarnation, we treat him more as a famous person that we know about, more so than a savior who's close. I'm sure at some level, living in America, this has seeped into your life. At some level, in our, in our sin and in our brokenness, something becomes rote about the famous person of Jesus. And today in this scripture, as we look at it together, I, I hope that we can see that he has come close, that he came close as a baby into a foul stable, but he also comes close to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, both personally, personally and corporately. And I think as, as, we, as we look at this scripture, we will see two main ideas, that Jesus has become close in his transcendence, in his bigness, but also in his eminence, in his closeness to us. We can know Jesus because he's big, because he's transcendent. You know, uh, perhaps you found this to be true in your place of work, or maybe you can imagine it, that the more someone works up the ladder of success, maybe they even get to the, the CEO point, the less known they typically become in the company. Everyone knows their name, but no one really knows them. They're more isolated. They're, they're harder to get time with. It's no wonder they say that it's lonely at the top. I wonder if God feels this way sometimes. I wonder if God feels like the great CEO of the church, distant. I wonder if we feel that way about him. You know, our scripture tells us in this very first part in, in chapter or in verse 15 of chapter 1 that he is the image of the invisible God that he's the firstborn of all creation let's spend some time talking about those two pictures this poetry that that Paul is writing to the colossian christians this idea of image it's it's not simply a, a photo on the wall it's not simply flipping through your phone and, and smiling at the pictures of the silly things you did last year or when there weren't masks on our faces. It's bigger than that. It's more beautiful than that. One author says that, that the image that's spoken of here is the revelation of what God is really like. That he's the image that he's the complete and full revelation of what God is really like. N.T. Wright says this. He says, humanity was made at the climax of the first creation. The book of Genesis chapter 1. From all eternity, Jesus has in his very nature... From all eternity, Jesus has in his very nature been the image of God... Not just in his incarnation, but in his eternity. He has always been the image of God, reflecting perfectly the character and the life 
of the Father. It was thus appropriate for him to be the image of God as a man. Just makes sense, doesn't it? From all eternity, he had held the same relation to the Father that humanity from its creation had been intended to bear. We see a fullness in the image of God, in the person of Jesus. Not just a picture, but the revelation of what God is really like. This is the second time I'll talk about coffee in this sermon. I love coffee. Perhaps for you it's a milkshake, so just insert that into your mind as I talk about coffee. Imagine the perfect cup of coffee or milkshake. Imagine uh, the crema, right? Like the whitish, yellowish stuff on top of it. It's just absolutely perfect. And the perfect mug, I don't know about you, but man, there are perfect mugs and sometimes they're in the dishwasher and that's a travesty. And the coffee just doesn't taste as good. Imagine the perfect mug. Imagine in this picture the, the, the right amount of steam even coming off of the cup of coffee. You know, the, the picture can be beautiful. It can make you desire the milkshake or the cup of coffee or whatever it may be. But the picture doesn't give you a taste. The picture falls flat as we experience the things that we enjoy drinking. The picture can, can make us want it, but it can't fulfill our desires. Yet in the morning when I go in and I make that first cup of coffee or tea or hot chocolate... And I sip it. My eyes open up. It's an experience of interacting with something greater than just either a a mental image or a, a physical image. There's an experience of that wonderful cup of coffee. And some of you silently are saying amen to that. Jesus is more than a picture. He's more than just a Christmas carol. He's more than just a nativity scene during this season. To experience Jesus is to experience the person of God. To experience the second person of the Trinity is to understand the heart of the Father and the working of the Spirit. This helps us so much because we are a people who need something tangible. That's why we come to the table each and every week here, isn't it? To really spiritually commune with the Holy Trinity. It helps us to know the heart of Christ. Someone recently told me, is this not the season for humility? Some of us need to hear that. As we're faced with divisive politics, as we're faced with differing opinions, we're also faced with a Savior. To know the heart of God is to understand his great humility, his great mercy, his great love for us. That he gave up his life, his rights, so that we might be given the gift of his grace. Amen? Yes, amen. Me too. Is this not the season to experience the heart of Jesus, his tender and loving mercy? The perfect cup of coffee. Jesus is greater. He's the perfect and full God. He is the image of the firstborn. Let that sink in today. Let that weigh on you. 
Let his bigness, let his transcendence impress you, not like looking for Clint Eastwood in Sun Valley. Let it weigh on you for the big and powerful God that he is. He's the image, and he's also the firstborn. This is in relationship to creation, but I think it has greater implications than that. You know, as we read the Bible, we need to to read it like it's meant to be read. Uh, here, it's, it's more figurative than it is literal. Jehovah's Witnesses say that, that Jesus was created, that he's not eternal, and they cite this verse. But when we read this in the context of the broader biblical understanding and the broader understanding of even Colossians and even these five verses, it's not the case. Let me give you an example. In Psalm 89, 27, it says this, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This was about David, who we know as we look in Samuel that he was obviously not the firstborn, was he? This is meaning the exalted to the highest place. You can find that in the ESV study Bible. That David would become this great king. That Christ would become the greatest king. That he is firstborn. That he is exalted to the highest place. That Christ is the exalted creator of all things. I love this part of this passage That Jesus is creator. That creator also came and got dirty and knew everything that we needed and all the challenges of this sinful world. That creator died on a cross for his creation. It's opposite. It's opposite from just this is the oldest child or this is the created being. This is messianic language. Calling Jesus the firstborn emphatically reinforces his divinity and his power. Or more simply stated, hey kids, guess what? Jesus is big. But he's not just big. Jesus is big, big. And that's awesome. And you know what? Us grown-ups need to hear that during this Christmas season. That Jesus is big. He's big, big because he was the firstborn of all creation. He's the image of the invisible God. Because? Well, for by all things, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, and the list goes on. Because in him all things were made. This, this points us even forward to the to the end of this passage in verse 19. This is the whole, but also the parts. As we read this, we need to understand that Jesus created everything, but he also created all things, didn't he? That Jesus created the mountains, the sawtooths, some of the most majestic things I've ever seen. But he also created each and every one of us and the ways our, our, our fingernails grow or our skin gets dry. He created us as human beings, past, present, and future. Glory to Christ, from creation to consummation, to the recreation of our souls. 
He creates everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, the spiritual world, the physical world. It's all for him. Author A.J. Jacobs, it's a fascinating article, you can look it up. Uh, He wanted to figure out, third coffee illustration of the day, uh, he wanted to figure out what actually went into his cup of coffee. I guess one morning he was sitting looking at it, uh, and he was thinking to himself, who was involved in this process? So he went on a journey. He went on a journey to discover every single person that had a hand in his coffee, Every other item uh, in in our lives could have this list, but he chose coffee. It would not be possible, he says, without the hundreds of people we usually take for granted. Farmers, chemists, artists, presidents, truckers, mechanics, biologists, miners, smugglers. And the list goes on and on. He lists every single thing that had a part in his morning coffee. But guess what had a part in our creation? Jesus. You see, all all the things that we look around and see, even the clothes that we wear, require so many different people to have a hand in its creation. But Jesus is more. Jesus is greater. He did it for himself. He is the agent of creation. He's also the, the, the starter of creation. That it was by him and through him and in him that all things were made. This is a big, transcendent God. Verse 17 tells us that he is before all things. That he's both eternal, but he's also over all things. Back when I was in college, I don't know if this is still the case. I think it probably is. It was always a good thing to to discover the, the popular band before they became popular. And that was always kind of like a, a, a badge of honor that you were able to carry. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I saw them before they were big. We, we have this tendency to, to want to be early adopters, right? A few years ago, it was, it was the MacBook. Now it's the popular computer, but it used to be not the popular computer. And you would see these artsy, artsy types hanging out in coffee shops trying to create a Word document that they couldn't create on a Mac. Fast forward five years. Oh, I was an early adopter to the Apple computer system. There's a pride that we almost get when we think about being early to it, being before all things, but Jesus humbles us yet again, doesn't he? Because in eternity, he's before creation. Before this world existed, I know this is simple stuff. Before this world existed, he was. And as this world existed, it has existed, he is over both in time and in position. His pre existence confirms and supports his position as glorious creator and gracious savior. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's what Paul tells us. You know, if I'm honest, one of, the, one of the hardest parts about planning a new church here in Boise, in downtown, with Brian Fry that so many of you know, uh, one, one, of the, one of the biggest travesties 
is that you don't get to know my wife. That, that we go to Boise Prez, which this church helped to plant, but that you don't get to know my wife. Her name is Bethany. Uh, she loves it when I use her as sermon illustrations. Um, and, and she really does, when I say this, I'm not just trying to earn brownie points. She really does hold our family together. She keeps the schedule way better than I do. I'm constantly leaving things off the family calendar. She is the one that, that makes sure, that, 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 that ensures that our family is doing all that we need to do, me included. She holds our family together. But she does this as wonderfully and beautifully as she does it. She does it in response to life. You know this, don't you? Plans change. Coronavirus happens. She holds our family together in response to life. But when we read that Christ holds all things together, it's bigger than that. Christ doesn't merely hold things all together in response to something He actually holds it together in response to nothing. He's perfectly emotional. His anger is not simply in response to us surprising him or messing up. His grace is not simply in response to our sin, but from the foundations of the world, he knew he would give it to you. He knew upon creation that he would give his life on a cross, that he holds all things together. We can know Jesus more deeply because he's transcendent, because he's big, big, big. What are some some application points for for this part? How does his transcendence help us to know him closely? Just just really briefly. It helps us to understand our, our creation, both personally but also the creation we see in, in the world, I think sometimes we forget. I think sometimes we forget that as Christians, we live in a world made by God. That we forget that, that we are heirs, that we are sons and daughters of the King. We sing the song, this is my father's world, but do we really believe that when we look at the mountains and the skies and the rivers and the streams and the oceans. When we understand his transcendence, maybe we understand our world. I think we can say that in humility. Our world, the world that he's given to us as Christians more clearly. Uh, it's the step back and wow. That when we open our door in the morning and the cold catches our breath, we remember that it's the cold that he created. That as we walk on the trails in and around Meridian and Boise and Eagle and, and, and all of Idaho, we remember that it's he that gave it to us, even though there are people that take care of the trails. I, help, I think that it helps us understand the creation in which we've been given, that we've been called to steward. I think uh, his transcendence help, helps us to understand our place more clearly, our place of humility I think we've talked about that enough. Or maybe we haven't. If I look into my own heart, I know I haven't. I think we understand our calling to worship because the object is more clear. The bigger we see him, the louder our worship. 
the more full our understanding of singing praise to a God that is big and transcendent. We can know him because he's big, but we can also know him because he's close. Because his presence is imminent. We see this in verses 18 through 20. It says in verse 18 that he is the head of the body, the church. That he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. Friends, we don't have enough time to talk about everything in that one scripture verse. But here's what we do need to know this morning. That we're not trying to, to draw this this false dichotomy uh, between the universal church and the, the, the local church. Instead, we want it to be a, a fullness of both of those things, that he's close to this church, that he's the head of All Saints Presbyterian Church, that while you have leaders in this church that love Jesus and follow him, that they serve someone greater, greater than the Presbytery, greater than the General Assembly, a great God and King, Jesus Christ, that, that he is the head of this church. And, and I think the comfort that we find in that is that as him being the head, it, it's a way for us to understand more deeply that we belong to him. Right? No doubt there are business principles that help guide every single church. And you've got men and women in this church that contribute in all sorts of ways in helping bring structure and health to this church body. Please do not hear me take away even one little bit from that, but please hear me say that the church is not a business. We belong to Jesus. We are his. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, my, my brother played college football, um, if you can call it that. It was Division Three. Uh, I hope I'm not offending anyone. Um, it was a, a really small team, and, and, and we would travel to watch my brother play. And, and I'll never forget that there was this there was one time in Virginia where he was playing, and, and there was just a, a negative Nancy in the stands. Uh, and, and, and this negative person was just commenting on every single bad thing that every single player did. I can't believe that number 55 missed that tackle. Did you guys hear the Southern just come out in my accent when I said that? That was strong. Um, every single little thing. I missed the tackle. The quarterback did a bad job throwing that pass and, and was just verbally saying this. My brother made a mistake as a as defensive back. And this man began to criticize my brother. And I'll never forget my dad's response. He turned around at him and firmly said, that one's mine. That one's mine. And the man no longer spoke. Friends, we have a God that says to us here at this church and the church around the world, those are mine. And there is protection and there is safety, even in a world that is unsure, in those words, I will be your God and you will be my people. We belong to him because he is the head of this church. He is the beginning. He establishes this church. He is the firstborn from the dead, defeating all sin and death. Again, Professor Wright says Paul links sin and death over and over again in his writings. 
And so when we read here in Colossians chapter 1, when Jesus overcomes death in resurrection, he deals with our sin. Hallelujah. Our sins are forgiven. What does this mean to his church? It means that the church is God's plan A, not his plan B. That even in sin and failure, the church is God's plan A. That in, in, in structure, the church belongs to Christ. This comes from, uh, from our, our book of order. Christ, as king, has given to his church officers, oracles, and ordinances. And especially, he has ordained therein his system of doctrine, government, discipline, and worship. Of all which are either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary inference, may be deduced therefrom, and to which things he commands that nothing be added, and that from them naught be taken away. Our God has brought structure to this thing. And so whether you're here in in Meridian, Idaho, or whether you're in sub-Saharan Africa, we have a God who is head, who is given to the church, ones to teach and serve and bless and show hospitality. To his church, he has given a plan, a structure. He's given love. Paul says that in everything, he's preeminent. He is the greatest. And he chose in his greatness to establish the church with all its warts and failures and sin because Jesus is going to make the broken beautiful one day in glory. You know, we're not called to love the church because it's good to us. We're called to love the church because Jesus does. That doesn't mean that we can't call sin, sin. It's not an excuse for abuse. But it is a picture of his love to us in giving us this church and our leaders. He's also come close to us, his people. Not just his church, but his people. We see this in verses 19 through 20. That all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That, that his closeness doesn't just extend uh, to a nice story of God being on our side. Being our cheerleader. But rather, he, he sees us in our sin, our brokenness, our failure. And he comes to completely take our place. By living the life we could not live. And by dying to death that we deserve. He gives us a new story. That in our justification, we are holy. In our sanctification, we are called to follow Jesus as he was obedient, perfectly. That it could only be him, God in the flesh, to take away the sin of the world. That through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, like Joe said earlier, by the blood of the cross. And friends, this peace It gives us shalom. It gives us a true rightness with our God forever. Our God has come close to us. He is transcendent, but he is imminent. And in this Christmas season, these realities call us to have a greater confidence as we approach the throne of grace to worship. That Jesus is not simply just famous. That our great God is glorious. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. 
We thank you that you were big and that you were close. And Father, I pray from the youngest to the oldest in this room, Lord, that we would know that and we would walk in that and we would be encouraged by that. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.